Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the Con Man's Answer Show live every week. If you haven't subscribed to me yet, what are you doing? This is the best new show in podcasting. We got a really good one today. It's with my boy, Kenan Hutchinson. He's a PhD student of neuro and brace virology. He's a creator and the host of Science with Kenan and a member and super fan of the Psy community. He clarifies his vaccine comment in here. We talk about everything ranging from COVID to even venom and anti-venom. It's a great episode. Take a listen. Now we're on the record. We were off the record for a little bit trying to figure out some mic situations. But without further ado, let's get this started. Welcome back, um, Kenan Hutchinson. You, let's just go over to start. Well, you're going to introduce yourself. But if anyone's been keeping up for the past 30 episodes, you know who this is. And let's just start with saying that a couple weeks or a week or a couple days ago on TikTok, posted a clip of you talking which is getting a little bit of attention right now talking about the vaccines. So introduce yourself and then we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks for having me back. Uh, as you said, I'm Kenan Hutchison. I'm a virologist. So I've been studying viruses for about the past decade, 10 years or so, and a science communicator on the side. So when I'm not studying viruses, I just talk about science and how it affects our life. So, you know, to start out before we even do anything, I even talk about that. Have you seen with anything that you've posted just regarding COVID, regarding viruses, has been controversial on your Instagram? Because you do have a, a decent amount of a following. And so have you posted anything where in the comment section it's, it's done exactly what's happening right now with the clip? Uh, you know, I will say Instagram has been a great place for me. And I feel like that is not the narrative that I hear from every other science communicator on Instagram or any other person on Instagram. Uh, I would say the most controversial thing that I've seen was I made a post where I was talking about the case fatality rate um, and why it was important to get vaccinated and how many people. And I I broke the math down just like one in every 55 people, I think, was the number uh, who was getting COVID was dying at that point. And the most aggressive things that I had were people who were like, explain your math to me. And then I explained my math like 30 times. And then I was like, okay, just look previously. But yeah. I looked at your post and you are getting way crazier comments than I ever get on anything that I post. So I think I, I have, like I said, so anyone listening to this, I have not been on TikTok that long, but I do think that might be something like you said, Instagram might be different than TikTok in that respect because I have seen people argue on one of my posts before. I posted a clip of this uh, music artist talking about uh, what he thinks happens when you die. Controversial topic at most. Um, And there were people doing the exact same thing, like shaming him and things like that. And so I never really got to experience um, people just like outlandishly lashing something i've said until a couple weeks ago before this one someone um people have been clipping and sending me things that i said out of context and i was like well i didn't mean that and so but yeah to see on my own page such a controversial argument and in a video that doesn't seem that like controversial you know you were just really talking about how anaphylactic shock was happening a little more regularly now disclaimer to anyone who's listening to this i posted that tiktok three months almost after we had this conversation so when kenan was talking he was talking from the beginning of the of the virus uh, of the vaccines so without further ado let's get into this what is the updating information on the vaccines that you know as a virologist not as an COVID expert, like we were saying, but what is the update of those numbers? Has there been more um, than just anaphylactic shock? Uh, yeah, I mean, so there, there's been some cases of adverse reactions that have gone through the system still. Uh, yeah, you've made a really good point. When we first talked about this, this was 
within the first weeks, maybe month or so of the vaccines being out. Um, and so what we were talking about with the anaphylactic shock was that we were seeing an increased rate of maybe like, I don't even remember what the number was at that point, like five maybe in a million. Every, for every million cases, there was maybe five cases of anaphylaxis uh, that was popping up at the very beginning. As more people got the vaccine, we saw those numbers steady and come plateau, I guess is the word, back out to like more normal numbers of around one in a million, two in a million, which is pretty much the, the general rate for any severe adverse reaction. And to clarify again, anaphylaxis, while it is scary, is treatable. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, I do not know anybody who has died from anaphylaxis from this. Uh, normally, that's why you wait after you get the vaccine. You wait for like 15 to 30 minutes. It normally sets on pretty quickly. Get an FB shot, a little Benadryl, you're all good to go. So yeah, that is <laughs> the clarification for that. Um, but yeah, the most common side effects that people are getting from these vaccines, if they're getting side effects uh, or symptoms, I guess, of them, are just going to be soreness, redness at the site of infection, fever, chills, uh, body aches and pains, and just like the successive tiredness. I got both of my doses and it leveled me the second dose that I got. I was just so tired. My body felt like I had just done like two a days for like a week straight <laughs> that night. <laughs> Uh, but then they're all, they're all of these symptoms pretty much resolve themselves within 24 to 72 hours. So like we said, you're just, this is just from the point of view of virologists, but have you seen any, or has anyone uh, reported any deaths or any of other side effects rather than anaphylaxis from now it becomes controversial when we talk about Johnson and Johnson, right? Let's actually, let's backtrack before that question. What happened with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? Cause I don't really know. I just know that they pulled it. Um, what was going on before they pulled it? Yeah, so I think that this is a great example of how attuned to the safety of these vaccines that we actually are when people are questioning safety. So what happened with the Johnson & Johnson was that out of 7.8 million doses of Johnson & Johnson that were given, there were seven cases that were identified in young middle-aged women who had blood clots. Um, and this was associated with the vaccine. So seven out of 7.8 million is like a one in a, less than a one in a million occurrence, which is pretty low. I was actually surprised that they pulled it, but it was a big enough deal that they said, hey, we need to investigate this. And so uh, that's what they did. They pulled it out, they investigated it. They said, hey, it does look like there's an association with this. Um, and so they said, it's not happening in men and in these other populations. So we're just gonna put a restriction or warning on it. So if you fall into this category where you have an elevated risk of blood clots, maybe don't get the Johnson & Johnson, opt for another one, but it seems to be safe for all of these other people. So let's get this back out there. So I really love that because Johnson & Johnson is like the gold standard of vaccines, right? It's one dose. You don't have to keep it at those super cold temperatures. It's really easy and accessible to get out to the public. And the fact that we were willing, we, I say colloquially, scientists, whoever, but the fact that they were willing to pause that, this like the end all be all of vaccines of like what we'd like to give people. And they're willing to pause it because of a less than one in a million rate of something happening to investigate, to make sure that it's safe. I think that that really speaks to how well we're tracking all of these adverse effects and making sure that these vaccines that we're giving to people are safe. I apologize if I didn't hear you say this or... Um... I wasn't paying close enough attention. Did you say why um, it was middle-aged women, young middle-aged women? I did not say, and I, I personally don't know. So I was telling you at the beginning of, of this show, 
when we first talked, I, I think I was, I was more lumped in with the COVID experts. I was staying really up to date with everything that was coming out. And, you know, for selfish reasons, uh, after getting vaccinated and posting everything that I could about this, um, I, I've kind of like tapered off on, on what I've been reading, what I've been following up on. And so more of what I'm going to say, more or less, is just going to be what I know just from what I've read, but I'm not like following completely and making sure I know every single paper that's coming out on it. So I'm really talking more as a virologist and a COVID expert here. Yeah. So, so um, while we're on the I, on the subject of vaccines, um, I want to get back to what we're seeing, the numbers and everything. But did you see what Joe Rogan said about young people that took off in the White House? Kind of. Can you? Was this, was this the thing where he was like, he was just like, young people should just get COVID. Like it doesn't matter. They're not getting sick. Is this is this the thing you're talking about? I think he said. Yeah, I think he said. I think it was more like he said. Uh, you, if young people, if you're like 21, healthy, healthy, work out, you, you don't, I don't, if you're 21, don't get the vaccine. So I think it is something like that. Can you all right, say if that's wrong, why that's wrong? And what, what is the correct thing? Should everyone get the vaccine? I know you're saying that it is better to get the vaccine, but can you just clarify why that is wrong and what should happen with young people? Yeah, yeah. So that, that is wrong. Uh, and the reason being is that the vaccine gives you protection without you having to be infected with the virus. If you get infected with the virus, no matter what, whether or not you're asymptomatic, no symptoms, or you have severe COVID, you have a living virus inside of you that's replicating. And every time it's doing that, it's killing cells, it's doing damage. And we know the effects of, of this virus. We don't know what all of the long-term effects could be. You could be asymptomatic and still have effects that show up later down the road because you had a live virus that was doing damage inside of you, even though you didn't know. So it would be much better to get the vaccine to generate that protection than to expose yourself to a virus and say, I'm young and healthy because this virus, it affects your cardiovascular system. So we're seeing reports of men having erectile dysfunction. We're seeing reports of increased strokes. We're seeing uh, reports of it infecting the brain and links with Alzheimer's um, and things like that. And so it, on top of it already uh, attacking your respiratory system, which is what we commonly think about this, right? People getting vented, but it's not just stopping there. It's, it's able to infect all sorts of places in your body because you have that receptor ACE2 all over. So if you have the decision, the option of being like, hmm, am I just going to think that I'm young and healthy and like risk getting an infection that I don't know what's going to happen? Or would I rather go and get a shot or two shots where I'm not going to get infected by this virus and then I'm going to have protection in case that virus comes in so it doesn't like do as much damage to fuck me up as much as, as it could if I was unprotected? So now that we know, because I, I remember I backtracked about the Johnson & Johnson. So now that we know that that was the Johnson & Johnson, why they pulled it was because of uh, the seven, William, seven Williams, seven women who had the blood clots. Um, now let's go to just the vaccines in general. So mainly Pfizer and Moderna. Have we seen any deaths, any other um, forms of autoimmune disorders? Because remember, they were talking about lupus. Did that happen? It did, was, it, was it not a causation? Could it have been a causation? What have we seen, to your knowledge, with these viruses or vaccines that are not that common, but still happened? Yeah, uh, I wish that I could give you a more in-depth like synopsis of all of the, and when I say all of, like probably the handful of random things that happen. So uh, there's, uh, what is that, thrombocytopenia, I think is what it's called. Uh, so you see this, this really drastic decrease in your white blood cells. Um, and this can be dangerous. I know I've heard of some cases of this occurring after the vaccination. Again, very rare. 
Um, and you got to keep an eye out on that. <sighs> what are, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head though. I guess there's not been a lot of really prominent things that have popped into my newsfeed at least of, of things that I've been like, Oh, I should be more aware, more wary of this at least in, in what's coming along. This is not very helpful to what you're, you're asking. It's a, no, no, it's okay. Um, that's like, like we said, this is more of a virologist talking to me, not really a COVID expert, but can we just talk to the people for a second and myself and explain to us from a virologist standpoint, why it is more important to get the vaccine? Because you did say that COVID, we have all these complications with COVID um, that we don't know down the line, but disregarding COVID, why is it more important when we do have a vaccine to take a vaccine than it is to get a specific, because they do range from all different things, all different types of diseases, all different types of sicknesses you can get. But why is it important to have vaccines and why are vaccines important? I mean, plain and simply, if you want a soundbite, it's vaccines save lives. So you can very easily go and Google and look up things like, I don't know, diphtheria or polio, smallpox, um, I mean, even the flu, you see the decrease in, in that, but you can look at the rates of these diseases that we used to have, measles, mumps, pertussis, and the people that got really sick from these, the people that were dying from these before the vaccine era. And then you see the introduction of vaccines and you see these, these diseases just almost disappear. I mean, there's still sporadic cases that you'll see, but I, in the best case scenario, they're completely gone. Smallpox is like our, our promised child and polio is thought to be gone by next year. So polio pretty much just pops up in uh, like India, I think there's a small population in like maybe the Southeast China, Middle East area um, because there was a scare around the polio vaccine, uh, the live attenuated one, like causing polio in people, which may, doesn't matter. Um, it it didn't. It it doesn't do that. If it's not inactivated, though, you can have problems. And so there was a scare around that. And so there was this anti-polio vax movement that allowed polio numbers to start coming back up. But then, as polio numbers started coming back up, and people who were unvaccinated, they realized, oh wow, the vaccinated people aren't getting polio. Maybe I should get the vaccine again. And now we're seeing people taking vaccines, and polio will probably be gone from this planet in humans. Definitely, I the the WHO thinks by 2022, I would venture 2025 is a safe bet. So within the next three to five years. So with something like polio, so you know, go back to our conversation last time about viruses. This is a weird hypothetical, but let's say in a world where um, we wipe out measles, we wipe out specific viruses, HPV, COVID. Is there a chance that a new virus comes around that's almost identical to that sickness, but, but generated itself almost completely by itself? Like, like not having any relationship to COVID, could another COVID come along and do just the same thing? Uh, in, in a way, I mean, I, I'm not going to say like a new virus is just going to pop out of nowhere. So it, there's a lot, viruses have been around for as long as DNA has been around. So probably since the beginning of time, it was like the first cell popped up and then the first virus popped up. Um, and so there's lots of different viruses. So let's say in this hypothetical that we completely get rid of SARS-CoV-2, which is this current coronavirus that's causing COVID-19, right? So it's completely gone. It is very likely that at some point, whether that's in our lifetimes or in the next 10 generations, there are hundreds, if not thousands of other coronaviruses that are out there. there. It is very likely that another one will pick up a mutation, 
end up coming into humans and can cause another pandemic. We've already seen this happen twice in our lifetimes. So SARS-CoV-2 is its own virus, its own unique virus. But in 2004, we got hit with the very first pan or epidemic coronavirus, which was the original SARS virus. And then fast forward, what, eight years later to 2012, and we have MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or yeah, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, uh, which is another coronavirus that jumped into camels and started causing a small epidemic. Uh, and so we have these outbreaks. So we've already, this is our third coronavirus outbreak in our lifetime, in the last 20 years, which is pretty crazy. So it's not crazy to think that within the next 20 years, there could be another one that pops out. So COVID numbers, what are they looking like from right now, from what you know of? Um, is it looking like the vaccines are helping a lot, helping a little? And do the vaccines, this is a compound question, I'm sorry, but do the vaccines actually stop you from getting sick? Because I think there's a, uh, a question I have that some people think that the vaccines stop you from getting sick and some people think that the vaccines stop you from dying. Which is the case? What are the numbers looking like? And what does the vaccine actually do? Yeah, a lot of questions tucked into there. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're good. So numbers are looking better. Numbers aren't aren't fantastic still, but they're way better than we were seeing back in November, December, like post the holiday season where we had a lot of people that went out, we had a huge spike in cases, we kind of saw that third wave in the United States. Uh, we're back down to pretty much early pandemic numbers. I think the last I checked, maybe, is it, oof, I could pull this up. I think we're at like 30,000 right now. Let me double check. Having real numbers is always better. Yeah. So yesterday uh, reported new cases were 25,000. So yeah, less than 30,000. And this is in the United States and we had 400 deaths. So those are, those are good numbers. I mean, particularly comparing that we were having like 50,000, 80,000 cases per day, right? We're, we're down to a more manageable number. The real risk was really overrunning our hospital systems with that. And we're not at that pushing those bounds right now, which is great. And that does seem to be correlating with vaccinations as well. So the only caveat that I'll throw in there is while we know that vaccinations are going to help with decreasing this, which we'll get to that last question that you asked, we also know that we saw a dip in the numbers occur around this time spring, more people are starting to go outside, right? So outside the virus is seldomly going to spread to people uh, just by nature of having air to dissipate the viral particles, you're gonna have less infection, be exposed to less infectious particles. So as people start going outside more, start socializing in, in less crowded spaces and indoors, we see this kind of dip down. And uh, so it's the way that we'll really know is when we saw that second wave that started coming around the hol summer holidays when people started doing stuff together again, the hope is that we're not gonna see that. And that will be a result of at this point, around 50% of Americans at least have one dose of the vaccine and 40% of Americans have both doses are fully vaccinated. So if we keep that trajectory, the goal is that we might still see some residual COVID that's happening, but we're not gonna ever see those numbers that we had over this last year. Yeah. and. As we say this, this is the week before Memorial Day. So it seems like the numbers are going to be showing at, in like, what is it, two weeks? And then you'll know, 14 days. Yep. Um, dang, I had a question for you, but we can well, just disregard it. Yeah, what are you going to say? Well, I was going to say I can follow up on the, the... The vaccine question. Yeah, do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you're asking, the last part of that question was, what's, what's actually the point of the vaccine, right? Is, is it to stop me from dying? Is it to yeah. stop me from getting sick? Is it to stop me from spreading the virus to other people? What, what does the vaccine actually do? And so at this point, what we could say the vaccine, the purpose of the vaccine is somewhere between that stopping you from dying and stopping you from getting sick. So we say stopping you from getting seriously ill. So the main pur purpose of this vaccine is that it's going to prevent you from needing to be hospitalized. So it's still possible that you could get infected with COVID. Um, we know we call these breakthrough cases. So when you're vaccinated and you still end up having, uh, getting COVID or getting infected. But the idea is that we want this, every infection to just become like asymptomatic or a common cold so that nobody really cares about it. You don't care about the cold. You're not hearing CNN being like, go get vaccinated for the cold every cold season. And that's what we want coronavirus to get back to. We, there's seven coronaviruses that infect humans at this point, and four of them just cause the common colds. And we're trying to make this one down to five of them being common cold. So I'm sorry for these controversial questions I'm throwing at you, but they, they fascinate me. And, and you know, I think a lot of us, the good thing that, we're doing here is a lot of us sit here and we don't have a virologist friend to talk to a lot of my, you know? And so like from seeing things that we hear from other people um, just spit out because, you know, I think a lot of this, regardless of anyone's beliefs is a lot of the, the, the people higher up right now are very polarized. And so they have, they feel like they have to say one thing or the other. So when someone says, because I did hear this and I, it does make sense. We talked about this last time. A lot of the deaths come from, comorbidities like obesity in America. And we do have a problem with obesity in America. Are we seeing, and, and a lot of the arguments that I, we're hearing right now is that there's not enough about staying fit and healthy because people are like, get vaccinated, go have Bud Light or go, go get um, Chick-fil-A or something like that. I remember a governor saying that. Do you think that, do you think that, we should be pushing more health and well-being as well as the vaccine? Or do you think that right now it's more important to talk about the vaccine? Well, I mean, it feels like a loaded question because the answer is obviously yes. You can't. Yeah. How can you speak about health and well-being without talking about health and well-being, right? So having a healthy lifestyle, making sure that you're in shape, all of these things, they're not specific to COVID-19. They're just general to having a healthy lifestyle and being a healthier person, right? If you, if you have a immune system that's already high functioning and your body's not fighting off things like diabetes or emphysema or COPD or anything like that, right? That's more resources to focus on keeping yourself healthy. And that every doctor that I know of in the world is going to tell you that that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't imagine a single doctor that's like, you should definitely sit on the couch, get to like 500 <laughs> pounds, eat potato chips, and like you're going to be healthy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's just a general conversation. I think when it comes to the, this pandemic, right, it, the, the talk is definitely on what can we be doing as preventative treatments. Vaccines are number one. Vaccines are a natural way to protect yourself against a natural infection, right? So it's, it's not like some like crazy medicine, like insulin or ibuprofen or something like that. It's just, it's a piece of a natural virus that's going to allow your body to do what it's meant to do and generate protection against you. And that's a great way to start protecting yourself. Living a healthy lifestyle, taking your vitamin D, that's also going to help, not as much as a vaccine, 
uh, because a vaccine specific to protecting you against coronavirus. Um, but it's going to help you to, even if you do get sick, to hopefully get over these things quicker. The last thing I want to say on that, though, is that I work here at a hospital and we've got a lot of friends who are in the emergency room and, and see patients on a daily basis. And, you know, we kind of think of this as black and white. It's like people with comorbidities, old people are the ones that are getting really sick. But I hear all these stories and I have pictures in my phones of all of these lungs of young, healthy people who are in their mid 20s to mid 20s to mid 30s who don't have these comorbidities who are still being hospitalized about this. So it's not like there's a magic number of if you're young and healthy, you're immune to it. You know, you never know if you've got some underlying genetic condition or if you just get a high dose or you get a variant of that virus that came from someone that's going to just put you out. And so why take a risk when you can have an action that protects you, which would be the vaccine. Has there been any studies on whether the people in the young 20s, when they get something really bad in their lungs, has to do with the vaping epidemic that we're seeing? And how, well, and I don't know if you know that answer, but I was thinking of that when you were talking. No, that's a, that's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. I would love to see the studies that come out on this. Yeah, smoking for what it is, is uh, it, it's not great. You don't want to be inhaling anything into your lungs. Uh, it affects your cardiovascular system again. Actually, I was just hanging out with my friend who's a urologist uh, the, uh, last night, and he was talking about this. Again, erectile dysfunction, I feel like, is a way to scare any guy into doing anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he was telling me about, like, so luckily it's, like, fairly reversible if you, as long as you stop smoking. But, like, the biggest cause of that in, in young men right now is smoking. And so, it, it, and that's because it's breaking down your blood vessels. And so this virus is already attacking your blood vessels. So vaping, smoking, anything that's going to cause damage to your lungs, damage to your heart, damage to your, your blood vessels is not not going to be great. So I imagine when those studies come out, there's probably going to be some correlation. But at this point, that's all speculation. You know, going off a little of digression, I think it it's it's all about habit. You know, everything that we do is about our habits. Um, it's so easy for me to fall into a habit where, especially if I'm not in school or I'm not playing football or I'm not like really engaged in something working, you know, if I'm on vacation or like I'm, I have some time to just, just like relax, it's really easy for me to fall on the couch, eat potato chips, hang out, drink a couple of beers every night and not work out or go, you know, do things. And, and, but then if I like, all right, I'm going to eat like this and I'm going to start working out really, if I start working out and I work out consistently for two to three weeks, five to seven days a week, because I like playing basketball and stuff. Like I saw your, um, shout out Ken and he can dunk. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I like staying a little active. And if I get in that habit, it's really easy for me to stay in that habit. So I think it's all about, you know, if we could find a way and now COVID kind of put a little shutdown on going outside and hooping and stuff. But now that everything's open up and stuff, if we could find a way to get it really instilled in people's minds, just try a habit, a good healthy habit for a little bit. I feel like it will be easier for people to consistently do it because it is especially um, exercise. It's so rewarding to you. If I don't get an ex a workout in when I know I should have worked out, I feel like shit. And I know everyone else feels like that. I, I bet you do too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I am in a habit of working out for sure, I feel like guilty when I, when I don't work out, uh, building habits are hard though. There's a ton of books. There is, what is it? Eight ways to build a habit or something like that. It's like, I was just recently reading that and high performance habits was another good book. Um, 
I don't know. The hardest part about it though is like building that habit, right? You have to, you have to have the drive, whether that's internal or external, if you're talking about exercise to go to the gym or to do your workout every day. Um, and that's just one aspect of it. I think while I'm always going to promote working out and having a healthy lifestyle, sometimes it's hard for people. Like imagine being a single mom who's working three jobs in order to make sure that her kids have all the resources to go to school. How do you fit in gym time in there, right? Or what if you live in a neighborhood where, you know, getting access to the gym isn't necessarily the safest place and you don't have a backyard to run in or you live here in the city and like, there's not a lot of green space for you. So it's easy to be like, yeah, I wish everybody would do this, but you always have to consider like, not everybody's as fortunate as us too. And so how can we make these habits, building these habits more accessible to everybody? And, you know, there is something to be said about people who are staying fit, recency bias. You know, if you're going to the gym, working out for an hour to two hours a day, lifting heavy ass weights, it will be easy for you. Like, why doesn't everyone do this? But I was recently listening to a podcast with Ethan Supley and Joe Rogan, the dude who was like 500 pounds. He was the, um, the dude in uh, Remember the Titans who was really fat and then he got really like jacked, that guy. Um, and he was yeah. talking about, it's all about what you can get yourself to do. If all you can do is get up and go to your car or get up and walk to the mailbox, then that's what you got to do. And so I think, and what I will say that I disagree a little bit, what you're saying is like, yeah, we are, a lot of people are fortunate, but I do think that a lot of us, um, especially in America, now the single mom argument is a very good argument, but I feel like a lot of us have time we can fit in, but we'd rather be comfortable in those times. We wake up, we get on our phone, we lay in our beds for 30 minutes. When all you can do you do some push-ups or do some squats, you know, everyone can do fit in a little bit of time. And I think that, you know, I'm totally, totally, totally victim of this. It's that when you're comfortable, when you're so comfortable, because our beds are so comfortable, you know, our cars are so comfortable, everything's like, we have Xboxes, we have laptops, you know, when, when we like allow ourselves to become so comfortable, we do, we, it's really hard for us to build a habit, like we're saying. And I think that's one of the reasons why building habit is so hard, especially like working out because it is, does take 30 to an hour. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't disagree with you there. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, back to, you know, you being a virologist and everything I saw, um, not too long ago. I can't remember when you were playing with, uh, you weren't playing, you were working, but you had the, uh, dude, what is it called? It's the ice that like liquid you touch nitrogen. it, liquid nitrogen. Yeah. And I was, yeah. I was so fascinated. I was just clicking through every story and I was like, what, cause what exactly were you doing with the, um, I know the liquid nitrogen was for viruses, right? But what exactly have you been doing in your labs? Have you been infecting things, seeing how viruses affect certain brands? What exactly have you been working on lately? Especially the liquid nitrogen, because that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, so that was, uh, those were actually cells. So liquid nitrogen is just really cold. It's like negative 321 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, which is just ridiculously cold. So I was doing something called snap freezing. So I had cells that I had proteins inside of that I wanted to see what was happening with these proteins, but it was like a Friday night. I wanted to come back and like chill with my people. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna wait and do this on Monday. So the way that I can save all of those proteins exactly how they were was I just threw them in that liquid nitrogen and it like instantly freezes them. Like think like sub-zero, like just like frozen in motion. Um, and so that's what the liquid nitrogen did. So it froze them. Then I stuck them at, uh, in a freezer at like negative 80 degrees Celsius and let them chill over the weekend. And then I was able to work with them this, this week. Um, so that's what the liquid nitrogen was for. 
what I've been doing in the lab is, my lab is a herpes virology lab. So we study herpes viruses, um, which are crazy viruses. They're, yeah, I'll, you know what, <laughs> real quick, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but let's, since you study that, like since you're working on that, let's, let's talk about herpes. Cause I don't think a lot of people, I think we got into it a little bit last time, but what exactly is herpes? And what have you been working? Like, then we can get into what you've been doing in your lab, but let's just take a little backtrack and what is herpes and why are they so fascinating? Because I'm fascinated by them too, because I don't want to get them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the sad thing is, or not the sad thing, the real reality is you probably already have at least one or two. So herpes is just this large family of DNA viruses. Um, and they're pretty much characterized, like one of their main traits is that they stay with you for life. So there are three different families of them, which aren't really that important, alpha, beta, and gamma. Um, and you can break those up by like where they infect you. So we study the alphas, which I'll get into in a little bit. But the, there's eight human herpes viruses. So you have herpes simplex type one and type two, which uh, most people are familiar with. So herpes simplex one is normally what you think about for cold source. Um, and then type two is normally what you think about for like genital lesions, like the STI, although you can get them interchangeably. You, um, then there's varicella zoster virus, which uh, is the chickenpox virus. So the virus that causes chickenpox is a herpes virus. Um, and you get that whether you've ever had chickenpox or the vaccine for chickenpox actually uses what we call is a live attenuated virus. So it's a live virus. We've just genetically changed it so that it's weak. So it doesn't give you chickenpox but it still has the ability to do what all three of those viruses can do. And that's hide out in your nervous system. So that's why I think that they're really cool is herpes simplex one, two, and varicella zoster virus, the chickenpox virus. They all, when they infect you, normally you don't even know the first time you get infected, but they get into your nervous system, which there's two parts of your nervous system. There's your peripheral nervous system, which is what allows you to like move. So like, if you like pinch your finger and you feel that, what's happening is that that pressure on your finger is sending a signal down these neurons that go on all the way up your arm into your spinal cord. And then they send a message from your spinal cord up your brainstem into your actual brain and your brain and brainstem are what your central nervous system, they're the ones that process things. And so the herpes virus, when it infects you, it'll go into those peripheral neurons and go and hide out in the little ganglion that are like right next to your spinal cord, but they normally don't jump into your spinal cord and that's where they stay for life. And then sometimes things like stress can cause them to wake up essentially. Uh, and then they'll come right back out. And so if you get like a cold sore, they go and travel up right underneath your brain. And then if you get stressed, they'll travel right back out and then they'll start reinfecting the skin cells. And that's when you get a cold sore typically. And this cycle happens over and over. And that's why herpes is for life. That is fascinating. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, because I've gotten cold sores. And I, so here's my question. I used to get cold sores all the time when I was younger, and now I don't get any of them. Why does that happen? I mean, there's a lot of reasons. That's a very active part of herpes virology research. Um, if I was to throw out just a rough speculation um, with some evidence that could go along with this, but I, this is by no means concrete. It's at, when you're younger, your immune system is a lot less defined. You're still learning and like building a stronger immune system. This is also why like we have to test vaccines separately for kids than for adults is because they have a more immature immune system. And so as you get older, your immune system becomes more mature, probably more capable at just like being able to keep the virus at like this latent state is what we call it. But, you know, things like sun or just stress or things like that, lots of different factors can cause them to reactivate. So 
once you have it, it's always there with you. It's your, your best friend for life. So when you say that they hang out next to the spinal cord, but they don't jump in, what exactly happens if they do jump in? That's, uh, oh, you're just, you're feeding me right into my research. Let's go, man. Uh, yeah, so that's one of my one of my projects is uh, I study this disease called herpes simplex encephalitis, and so essentially that's what happens when the herpes virus doesn't stop at that point next to it and it jumps in and goes up to your brain and it causes swelling in your brain and this often can kill you uh, if if not treated. Luckily, we have drugs like acyclovir, valcyclovir that that can help, but normally it causes uh, brain damage that's often irreversible has some long-term effects with it. Um, and so we don't know exactly why that happens. It happens a really small percentage of people, like 0.0001% of people who have herpes simplex one or two um, will end up with herpes simplex encephalitis, those infections in your brain. Uh, and one of the projects that I'm working on is we've discovered uh, with our collaborators out in New York, uh, this most often occurs in kids. So when you have like a newborn baby, if the mom gets herpes for the first time, uh, as they're delivering the baby, the baby can get in the birth canal and uh, they can be susceptible to this. And we found that there's actually a genetic link. So there's this small percentage of people in the world who have these mutations where it, their brain cells, their central nervous system brain cells don't have this gate anymore to block the herpes from getting in. And so then it's just like, oh, come on in, which is really dangerous. Or the majority of us, 99.99% of us have this functional gate and the virus just seems to not be able to get into those cells. So it just hangs out. That's, and you, when you say, we always talk about like 0.001% of people, but isn't that still like, let's go America alone, like 100,000 people or 10,000 people? Point zero zero zero. 1%. I think it's like essentially like one in a million and there's 330 million people. So I think that's what 33 people in the United States, oh, 33 cases. You said I, I, I missed Is that. Right. Maybe, maybe I'm doing that wrong. Wait. All right. Let's, let me just million. do it. Let me just do it. Yeah. Let me just do the See, math. This is why I went into biology because computers could do my math for me. <laughs> Listen, my last episode, we were trying to do like every person, you know, is uh like, like say everyone knows, uh, um, a hundred people and we were trying to do that math and we just could not do it. Okay. Times point. Oh, I'm an idiot. If it's one in a million, that's 330 people. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. God, dude, yeah. everyone listening, listening, everyone listening to my show. There's this one part where we're just struggling with math. I should just call this the struggle with math show. But, um, yeah. So like 330 million people, uh, well, in, in America, I guess, if you're looking at 0.001%, uh, we'll have HSE. So very low in terms of like all the people, but also who wants to have an infection in their brain? Nobody, hopefully. Um, some of them <laughs> might be weird, but no, I'm just kidding. But um, you said mutation and it got me thinking about something I heard yesterday. Because remember we were talking about mutation last time. And I heard this, that the, have you heard of the drunken monkey hypothesis? Yeah, for uh, why we can, why our acetaldehyde or our alcohol dehydrogenase, the protein that allows us to like break down alcohol is so functional so that we don't die when we drink alcohol and we have a good time. Yeah, because um, I was watching it. It was, I think it was a clip and it was saying that like when we, when, when we started coming down a really long time ago, one of our ancestors, when we started coming down from the trees, one of them had, 
this mutation that would let them eat the fermented fruit that fell from the trees and was on the ground. And, and it would gave them extra calories. So it, in the long run, it helped us. And that's why we get, we can get fucked up basically and have a good time now. Science for the win. Yeah. The reason you can get drunk and don't die as soon as you start drinking alcohol, all because of a mutation. Well, and it made me think about what we were talking about last time too, because like, Basically, all the greatest, like not all of the greatest, but a lot of the good things that we attribute to being a modern human today can be tracked back to a mutation that wasn't like that common in our ancestors. Yeah. I mean, that's evolution. That's, that's the whole basis of evolution, right? Evolution typically doesn't happen to a, a it, not typically, it doesn't happen to a person. Essentially, you have a mutation that has a benefit. And if that benefit allows you to essentially live longer and correlates to you having more kids, then your kids are going to have that mutation. And then eventually like the population with that mutation grows. And all of a sudden you have this whole new people who have this mutation in there. And if you get enough of those and you can create completely new species and that's how the world works. Yeah. Yeah. At least this world that's dude. It, because it really puts everything like when you're learning evolution, you're probably in third grade or something like that. So it doesn't really stick with you. And so like when I was watching that, it took drunk monkeys for me to understand what really like, what everything that I was learning from the whole time, but to go back to like uh, STIs and things like that, like herpes and what you're um, studying. A question I have for you is that is the reason that STDs and STIs are so prominent through sex is because of that how easy it would be because it is two bodies mixing together because you would think about it as like viruses going through probably through the respiratory system or 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 and some viruses go through through um sexual intercourse is that because because some viruses you can't get from oral sex and you have to get it from intercourse so it's like why does that happen is it because of it's it's like mixing of two like is it because of the fluid is it because of it's uh it has to be like severe touching it has to go in the bloodstream how does that really work i mean you know if you don't know it i understand but why does it why does it work or why are sexual um diseases so prominent in humans yeah, I mean, I guess, first of all, I'd take a step back and put it in perspective. I wouldn't say that they're super prominent. I think respiratory viruses are super prominent in humans. You also get viruses from eating things, right? If you eat contaminated food, it's essentially any time that you let something outside, we call it a pathogen, something dangerous, get inside to what I'd call like your mucosal cells. So anything that's slimy, essentially, like you're giving it access to the inside and that's where you're at risk. Um, but yeah, when it comes to STIs, at least, I think, A, just as humans, sex has always had a, a, a thing around it, right? Like people are fascinated by sex and like that either like makes them become like hypersexual people where they're really interested in it or it like pushes them the other way and you become like super like churchy and like there's a whole taboo that's built around sex and everything. So like it's just really fascinating. So when it comes to STDs, then that it's already something that people in, want to engage with and probably sticks in their minds more so than say a, the cold, right? Which is super prominent, way more prominent than any of these STDs. Um, but with, with one of the other things you were talking about was like transmission. And so um, A, when you're having heterosexual intercourse, right? You're gonna have a dick going into a vagina. There's a lot of mucosal epithelia in there and you're pretty much just sticking a rod 
hopefully that rod is clean, but if it's got some sort of disease on it, some sort of bacteria or virus, then you're just sticking it into one of those mucousy surfaces, right? And you're like, just like hand delivering uh, a disease up in there, right? So that's, that's yeah. one reason why it's more prominent. Uh, the other reason though, is that, and this is uh, particularly when you think of like HIV, so not just with heterosexual sex, but with uh, homosexual sex too. So with guys, um, one of the big reasons and the big risk of like anal sex, I guess, is that it, your butt's not naturally lubricated the same way. And so you get a lot of these things called micro tears. So you'll, you're, as you're actually having sex, and this happens in the vagina too, but you get these like little cuts essentially from friction and from rubbing and essentially those little cuts are openings for outside things to get in and so unlike if i were just like kiss you on the forehead you're probably not going to get herpes on your forehead but if you have a cut on your lip and i kiss you and mm. my virus is able to get into there now it's gotten past your skin already it's gotten past a lot of the defenses that your body already has to keep, keep these things out and it's got a quicker access to establish that infection so i would say that that's that, that might get towards like uh, the, the answer that you're looking for. So is it just because of the micro tears, why HIV is more prominent in gay or was more prominent in gay men than it was in heterosexual sex? Or was there another reason? Uh, I wish that I knew the full story to that. So I can't really comment on, on why it's more prevalent. Um, I think that there's a lot of factors that go into that, but that's definitely not my area of expertise. And, falls more into like epidemiology research yeah. than, than the virology of HIV. Yeah. And, you know, just go back to viruses. So last time we were talking about sexual or not, we were talking about um, HIV. We, we were stemming, I think we went even to um, malaria at some point. Uh, but what is right now, what is a virus that just fascinates you? Um, that maybe we still don't understand, maybe you do know a lot about it, but what is a virus that fascinates you um, that's maybe ongoing today or hopefully extinct, just anywhere from those? Rabies is my favorite virus, hands down. Rabies is a crazy-ass virus. <laughs> I remember uh, you telling me that um, like 99.9% .9 of people die with rabies, right? Yeah, if left untreated, it, that virus will like mess you up. <laughs> uh, and I always... I think I did this last time too. I'm pretty sure the answer is five. Uh, does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the, I remember you saying something about this, but re remind me the five. It's like letters, right? Uh, no. So proteins. So humans have. Uh, I just want to make sure. Yeah, five. All right, it is. Uh, so humans have like there's 23,000 proteins that are each, you can think of a protein as like a little worker inside of your cells that does a job. So mm -hmm. to make you who you are, to have blue eyes, to have the color hair that you have, all of that, there's about 23,000 proteins that it takes for you to function. The rabies virus has five proteins, just five. And this thing is microscopic, tinier than your cells with only five proteins, and it will kill you nearly 100% of the time that you get it if you don't treat it. And it just blows my mind. That's the first cool thing about it. And then all of the, the symptoms and side effects of how it works, rabies is thought to be um, the disease is probably what stemmed uh, werewolves, uh, the like the idea behind werewolves, right? So you get bit by a rabid dog. And then one form of rabies is that once it gets to your brain and causes all this swelling, it kind of 
represses your frontal cortex that allows you to act like a normal human and you kind of become a little bit more animalistic and like you also become very delusional and crazy so you like lash out and then the virus goes into your salivary glands which makes you like start Foam. foaming and also it also uh, since it's replicating in there, it swells your throat up. So your throat hurts really bad. So you don't want to swallow, which is why if you've ever heard, like some people with rabies are afraid of water. It's not because the water's scary, although that's a fun, like mythology thing. It's actually because just looking at water, when you're really parched, you, you like just seeing water, like you swallow instinctively and it hurts so bad that they don't want to look at anything that's going to make them swallow. But so like you have these people who are afraid of water, who are acting kind of crazy, kind of delusional, and then the virus spreads essentially from your saliva. So I don't think it's super common for humans who have rabies to bite other people. But if it all it takes is one person who's like foaming at the mouth after being bit by a dog and you're like, wow, they're turning into a dog, werewolf. So how, cause I didn't know that you could treat rabies after you were bitten. How do you treat it? Is there a specific time that you have to get treated by? Yeah, so rabies is another another thing that makes rabies cool. Uh, it travels from in your nervous system also from neuron to neuron. So essentially, however far the bite is that you get for rabies. So if you get bit in your finger here, the virus has to travel from your finger all the way up your arm to your brain. And once it's in your brain, you're pretty much screwed. There's I don't think there's any treatment at that point. Um, and so if you get bit on the face, though, it's a lot shorter trip to get to your brain. So depending upon how far away is how much time you have, which is why if you get bit by an animal that you suspect has rabies, you should go in instantly. Um, and what they do is they give you A, the vaccine for rabies, and then B, they give you a cocktail of antibodies against it. And essentially, since the virus takes a while to like tra travel throughout your body, uh, that is enough that those antibodies are able to stop the virus from getting to your brain. So, so long as you treat it before it makes it to your central nervous system, your brain or spinal cord, it is very treatable, which is great. But if you don't catch it, it is very not treatable, which is not great. So talking about rabies, it makes me think of, uh, first off, that is fascinating that that's where maybe we think of where the idea of werewolves came from. I had no idea. But it also makes me think of, Shoot, where did my question go? I was thinking of another, another um, human to animal virus. It lost me. Let's go back to COVID for a second. I'll remember it. <laughs> I will. COVID, it seems to me that, that COVID is almost out the door. Okay. And like you said, if we see not a jump like we did last time with these holidays or even into the fall season, that it will be a good indication that it's on going to become like a common cold, you know, why? So a big question around it was, was it ever as bad as we thought it was? Like you said, you have friends who work in the ER and they're young people. Was it ever as bad as we thought it was, or was it blown out of a portion in your mind as a virologist? Yeah, I think it was worse. I mean, there was definitely a lot of people yelling really bad, but I didn't realize uh, early on in the pandemic because I was staying home and not in the hospital setting until I started working with the people who are in the hospital settings, how actually bad and terrifying it was. I think it was, it was really bad. And there was a point where, again, I live in the city. It's different all around the country. The United States is super diverse. So it, 
if you live in rural areas, like maybe back where I grew up near Iowa, uh, the hospitals weren't at this point, but there are definitely places where we were reaching capacity, which is really scary because then not only are you having people who are sick and dying from the pandemic, but you're gonna have people who are sick and dying from other things because they can't get access to treatment. And that's really scary to be at that point as a country. So I do think that with all the people that wanted to downplay things that it, unfortunately because of HIPAA things and stuff like that, you can't just take a camera into the hospital and show what's going on. But thus the stories from the hospital and what was going on there was, was scary. And this pandemic was big. I mean, half a million, no, yeah, half a million people, more than half a million people, almost 600,000 people have died from this this year. That's, that's a huge point. The CDC tracks how many people die each year, essentially. They break it down by causes. There's like this really morbid uh, thing, which is like the estimated death value. So like how many people are going to die each year? Like this is the predicted number. And you can look at their website and like essentially the pandemic kind of started and then all of a sudden there's a spike and we just exceeded. There's so many more people who died this year than we even predicted. And like that number is normally, that threshold is pretty high. So like we built in a cushion and it surpassed that cushion. And we just saw a lot of people dying this year, which is which is really unfortunate. It's It's, I mean, people are going to die, but I don't know, as a human being, especially as a scientist who like dedicates their life to, to studying things and developing treatments so that we can avoid this, it's really sad that this happened and anybody who died because, because of a poor decision, I think, it, 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 it's really hard. Yeah, it, it, makes you, it makes you wonder because now the thing is, we did talk about this last time too. Is that we we it seems as though um, with the more deadly pandemic viruses, they're less transmittable, right? And so there's this almost like if it's more transmittable, it's probably less deadly, but it still kills people. And if it's more deadly, it's less transmittable and it still kills people, right? And so it makes you wonder like. Is there a better way we could have handled this? Was staying at home the best option for everybody? Because you know, while, you know, it's unfortunate and 600,000 people is a lot of people for, for the United States. Um, and then, but now on top of it, you got to think too, the economic downfalls that a lot of people had to sustain. And it's, we're not hurting Amazon. We're not hurting Walmart. You know, we're hurting pop, mom and pops, which is who we would want, you know, to help the most. And so there is this little almost like, is there a better way we could have handled COVID? Do you think there was? Yeah, I do. I think, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Um, yeah. But I think, I think people would not have really appreciated the approach of what I think is the best. Um, but I think the two things that we, our biggest shortcomings first in handling COVID was our messaging. It's very confusing. It wasn't always the most clear or the most honest and open. And I think that ended up leading to the second problem where it became, uh, it became political, but it also just became, people started not trusting the public health sources and either having to turn to other sources, which were either political sources or non-expert sources or to trusting their own thoughts because they're like, well, the CDC tells me I don't need a mask and they say I do need a mask and then they say I don't need one. Like they don't know what they're talking about. So I'm either going to listen to so-and-so over here or I'm just gonna go with what I think is my bet, my, my best bet. And that, that all stems from just poor messaging. Um, I think that, again, this is just my opinion, completely my opinion. Um, I think that had we 
really locked down in the beginning. Um, just like really just shut down, had the stimulus funds that we did so that we could make sure that people could stay home, right? And could afford things so that we had this under control and then took that time of while people were at home to assess what the best plan was and had consistent messaging and consistent strategies for reopening, not based on what the whole country is, but if your county has this many cases, then you are in this tier and this stage and you can open up this way. And if we just had a consistent messaging across the United States, rather than, you know what, let's let the states take care of this and you know we'll see what happens over here. There was just a lot of chaos around this. And I think that that was what ended up leading this pandemic to drag out longer than it should have. I mean, we, we've seen it in other countries. We've seen South Korea, we've seen uh, even Germany, um, how they handled this. And uh, Australia is another good example of when they use different strategies, how they were able to open up a little bit earlier. And so I think that's the, been the biggest downfall that I saw around all of this. Yeah, it is unfortunate. And, you know, one of the, one of the problems with that approach, like it, it, we should probably should have, but the, one of the problems is we, we, um, you can't enforce martial law in a pandemic or you can, but we haven't done it. Um, uh, except for times of war. And there is something called the police powers of the States for the States to decide what's best in the health and welfare of the, their citizens. And so under the specific Republic that we have States to federal government, you know, States get to decide what's the best health and welfare for their citizens. And so, I don't think we had the power, the federal government to do so. And that is a problem when we have a country as big as the United States, when we have 50 different specific states, because like you said, like there is a difference between New York and Alaska, right? But if we would have had a national mandate, it wouldn't have been a problem in New York or Alaska. You know, I feel like it would have been better, but then it gets back into the whole thing. It's like, we we've printed a lot of money and we've been giving out these checks and if we would have shut down, could it have been a different, it could it have been a different story on the back end, but our government system is set up in such a way that it limits so much power to one direct, you know, branch of government basically. So it's almost like it happened the way it had to in the United States. And it's unfortunate, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree. That's why I said people would not like the approach that I, I am pitching. Um, because essentially, I look at this from a, a scientist viewpoint and like what would have been the best way to eliminate this pandemic essentially and to like mitigate risk and damage. But that's in a very fan, fantasy world where politics don't exist, right? And you have to operate in the political system that we are in. And again, I, I can't just, if it was Kenan's world and I just had martial law and I was just like, all right, this is what we're doing. Everybody stay home. Don't worry. Your bills are covered. Like just stay the hell at home for like the next month and a half. And then we're going to be cool. And then during like the summertime when things are lower, what we're going to do is this is what really irked me. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are, are teachers and I, I also work in the school system a little bit. It's just like a lot of schools just had really terrible plans for how to interact with students and bring students back and it's like what were you doing also did you just think that this was going to disappear so i would have had a hard shutdown to really limit the amount of spread up front 
use that time to assess what is going to be best and make a tiered system for what is the best strategy for reopening and not just everything opens back up, but when we're here, like this is a safe level for things to be happening. But if we start seeing cases hit this number, we need to implement these things countywide, statewide, countrywide. These are the rules that everybody should be following and then leave it up to the states to implement those. But again, not a, not a feasible thing in, in this world that we live in. So another question that goes along with limiting viruses um, in general and um, like with, along with shutdowns is masks. Now, the thing is, I feel like not all the masks work the same. You know, you see, you walk into a, a, a grocery store and you see a person wearing, wearing a bandana that I feel like doesn't oh. do anything. And then someone wearing like double masks of M90s <laughs> and you're like, well, that does a lot. So like, what, is there a limit to what masks can do? And is there a limit to what different masks can do? Yeah, there's lots of studies out there that have looked at just the different types of fabrics that are used for masks, the different types of masks that are out there. I mean, the main thing that hopefully everybody knows at this point is that the main purpose of masks is to prevent you from spreading particles from yourself. Uh, it does work, but not as effectively at stopping particles from, from coming into you. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually, I was just at the store the other day and there's two guys that had bandanas on. I'm like, bro, like, we're a year, almost a year and a half into this pandemic. Like, how do you not have a real mask at this point? Come on. Um, at first, yeah, just doing anything to cover your face is it's better than nothing. But yeah, just having a standard mask at this point is, that, that's all I have to say on it. And honestly, I now that I'm vaccinated, like one of my favorite things now is not feeling like I need a mask when I'm around other vaccinated people. So I still wear a mask when I'm out in, in public spaces um, or if I'm like in an enclosed area where I don't know the vaccinated status of people just until the science comes out that like definitively is going to tell me that my risk of spreading COVID, even if I have it like asymptomatically as a vaccinated person is less than 5%. Um, but yeah, outside of that, like you saw, you were commenting on some of my videos, like playing basketball, go out and play hoops. Um, all of the med students are, are vaccinated here. So we just had like a little like 30 person get together with like everybody vaccinated, which has been, it's been great. It's, it feels really nice to, to A, feel safe and good uh, for myself and like also the community and like really get back to normal, so. So I heard this, um, I don't wanna call it a myth because it might be true, I'm asking you. I heard this <laughs> um, theory, I guess that um from my friend who just had a newborn and they said and she's vaccinated and they said that he might get the antibodies from the breast milk the doctor said that is that true yeah yeah i've heard that as well so i mean that's a common way that antibodies are passed on to newborn babies so we were talking about having immature immune systems right so the baby hasn't their immune system hasn't developed yet. They haven't been exposed to all of these things. And so one way that we naturally have evolved to protect our young is that mother's milk carries antibodies that can be transferred over. So that's also why like they suggest uh, breastfeeding parents get like the flu shot, right? So those antibodies also pass over into the, the baby. The difference is those antibodies are transient. So they're not the baby's antibodies. So they just kind of float around until they're gone. 
Whereas when you get like a vaccine, you actually have the cells. So there's cells in you called B cells. And those B cells are the immune cells that make your antibodies. And then there's T cells and the T cells are the ones that will go and like attack and kill things. And so when you have immunity, you have the B cells that make the antibodies inside of you constantly. And the T cells that can go out and kill the things that are labeled with those antibodies. Um, whereas like if I just give you, like there's the, the monoclonal antibody treatments that you might've heard about. Uh, which is essentially the same as like transferring antibodies through mother's milk. So that's just taking somebody else's antibodies, not those B cells and putting them in you. So they'll do a little bit of work, but then once they leave, you're susceptible to getting infected again, because you don't have the cells in your body that know how to make those. Does that work with like anti-venom and things like that too? Uh, I'm definitely less familiar with anti-venoms and things like that. Um, I I think that there is antibody cocktails for that though. I'm not positive. So this is definitely just me thinking off the top of my head. But yeah, I think if I remember like as a kid watching the Discovery Channel stuff, like, yeah, they like take the venoms out and then they try to make antibodies and like chemicals essentially that will recognize that and neutralize the venoms, which is the same idea, right? But I don't think that people have like B cells anti-venom B cells in them, but I could be wrong. And that would be amazing. I would change my field of study if that was possible. So one of the things that fascinates me, especially with like um, anti-venom and venom in general, is that one of the theories of why we develop such good eyesight, such keen eyesight as um, primates, as humans, is because when we were coming down from the trees and when we were in the trees, snakes would eat us. Um, and so we, we were like, that's why a lot of people are afraid of snakes. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I, I've heard it and that, so we had to develop really good eyesight so we could look out for snakes. And so something that, you know, fascinates me is how scared of snakes people are, you know, not everybody is afraid of snakes, but most people, some people really like snakes and they have like snakes to themselves. But it's a, a lot of people like you hear that I, I live in Southern Nevada and you hear you know, you're frozen, you're a prey animal. And so to think that we could have developed as, as primates, as humans, our eyesight could have gotten better because of that, because snakes would eat us is, is fascinating. And I've always thought about too, like, I, you probably don't know exactly what venom is. Um, but do you know how like animal bites work? Cause we were talking about dog bites and um, rabies and how that um, viruses can transmit. But do you know anything about venom and how that works and how it deteriorates your skin and things like that? Uh, oof. I mean, not enough to be really have a really interesting conversation with like all the science behind it. Um, but yeah, it's, they're, they're forms of toxins, right? And so like a lot of the venoms that like snakes and stuff will have are neurotoxins. And I don't think it's just snakes actually. Uh, I think there's some parasitic wasps that do this too, maybe some spiders even. Um, a lot of them are neurotoxins though. And so we were talking about your nervous system earlier and your nervous system controls everything, everything essentially. Your brain thinks things and that's how like I can talk because my brain's sending a signal down to my mouth that's saying move and like make my vocal cords do this. That's all your nervous system. My nervous system's also doing things that I don't have to think about like breathing. Like I'm not constantly thinking like diaphragm, flex, pull in air, unflex, push it out. If I had to do that all the time, I wouldn't have time to work on a PhD. <laughs> um, 
But so a lot of these things, there's chemicals that all of your nervous system talk back and forth. So like dopamine, you've probably heard of serotonin, uh, GABA, glutamate. These are all, all different types of neurotransmitters, little chemicals that your brain uses to talk to each other. And so a lot of these venoms that I, or some of the cool venoms that I'm aware of, like, I don't know, the blowfish toxin or whatever, uh, these are, they interfere with that signaling. And so they stop your body from being able to do things. And so a lot of times people will die because they like end up suffocating because if your brain can't send a signal down to your diaphragm to breathe anymore, well, then you can't get oxygen in and you end up dying. Or if you're, if it gets into your heart and your heart's not it, your heart's pretty cool because it has its own like little battery pack that has its own electrical signals. But if it starts interfering with its ability to send those signals, then your heart stops pumping, which is also not good. And that's, that's how you end up dying. The necrosis stuff is pretty crazy. Like uh, I'm terrified of, what are they, brown recluses here in the Midwest. Um, like when they bite you, I have uh, one, of my, one of my high school friend's dads got bit by a brown recluse. Like I bit, he's a big guy, like, I don't know, six, six, 300 pounds, like big beefy arms. And he had like a crater like probably the size of, I don't know, like a, like a racquetball, like out of his arm. And it was just like, it was covered in iodine, I remember, but like the skin just like started necro necrosing. So it just like started like dying and eating away. And I have no clue what causes that, but it was terrifying. I was like, I will, I hate spiders. I hate them so much now. Yeah, brown recluses and I mean black widows aren't that bad. I mean they're bad. Don't get me wrong. Black widows are not good. Don't go out and get bit by a black <laughs> widow. But brown recluses I've always heard are bad to get bit by and vinegaroons too. What fascinates me about the vinegaroon is that I think I hope I'm saying it right. Is that as you get bit, you taste vinegar for like for like a while after. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? I don't know how that happens. And it's crazy that we don't have venom. Like, why can't I bite someone and then they just like they taste vinegar? No, no. But um, you know, science science fascinates me. And one of the things that fascinates me that you brought up was the battery pack of the heart. Right? We got into this last time. We can go back into consciousness as much as we want. But the battery pack of the heart. I was wondering, um, when you go brain dead, right? How? Mm -hmm. Are you still alive? Because it seems to me, if you're brain dead, your brain can't send the uh, signals to your heart to keep pumping, or you to keep. Now, breath is a lot of the times not a ventilator, but at least for your heart to keep pumping, right? Why do you know anything about why when we're brain dead we're still alive? Uh, I again, outside of my expertise, so we are definitely just in like having fun chats right now. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah. So one, one thing is that your heart, like I said, has its own like little essential like battery pack. It's, there's a little spot where the signal starts and it sends out an electrical signal that allows for your heart to fibrillate and pump. Um, and that's uh, partially autonomous from your brain. So like your heart can keep pumping even after you are brain dead, but also like as, as an athlete, I'm sure you know this, like you can also send signals to your heart to like slow your heart rate down, right? So it's not like completely by itself. It's not like the heart's doing its own thing. If you're like really hyperventilating and your heart's pumping, you can like, okay, focus on my heart rate, feel it slow down, right? So it's linked, but not completely linked. Um, I don't know enough. When I think brain dead, there's two parts of the brain that I also think of. And so you've got your amygdala, which is like your basic animalistic functions and like also it's like 
a lot of like keeping you alive, like regulating your body temperature, uh, regulating your, your heartbeat, your breathing, the things that you don't focus on to stay alive. And I don't, when the rest of your brain, the main part of your core frontal, I don't know, the whole thing, cortex, cere cerebellum, cerebrum, whatever it's called. I think, those um, are, I think there, it's the cerebrum and cerebellum. I think there is two parts. So the rest of the parts that like do the actual thinking, right? Like process hearing, memory, your personality and all of that. That's normally what I think of like with brain dead, but like the, the core parts that like you need to keep yourself alive. I don't know if you stay alive with, without that, but other without machines. We're again, these are just two guys talking now. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have no, I no, do not have a medical degree. So what I will say this is this. We got into this last time and I want to get into it with you again because it fascinates me. Personality is something that blows my mind because you brought it up, personality. Is it all in our brain, you know? Because it makes me wonder because like there's nurture versus nature, obviously, but mannerisms are something that is entirely body almost. And I think there is a mannerisms can be a little bit of DNA and a little bit of um, nurture, you know? I don't think you necessarily always learn um, the mannerisms of your father because they might've learned it from their father, 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 right? So it's like almost like this genealogy of your whole family of like personality and who you are. And so that's why it fascinates me because back to what we were saying last time, if you make a STEM brain, and put it in my body, would it be me? Would I have my own personality? Because I think that is an argument against it being you. It'd almost be a robot me that knows what to say and knows how to act, but it wouldn't be me, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure the last time we had this conversation, I was on team, it would not be you. <laughs> I think you were, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that, yeah, you just made an argument for, for my side, so I'll take it. <laughs> But I do agree with you that like some mannerisms though, I do think are, are more so genetic. So the, the, you're saying something that really just made me think of like my own life. So I grew up with a single mom. Um, my, my dad was in the picture. He's in and out of jail my entire like youth. So I didn't really know him, didn't really meet him. And I remember I'd be like in middle school and like being a rebellious teen and like yelling at my mom about something and she'd be like you look just like your father when you do that like i'd like make these faces where i'm like mm. yeah and then like when i met my dad later on in life and like i started building relationship with him i would see him do these things that like i did and i was like you can't that's my thing like i do that thing he's like no i've done this my whole life i'm like i don't know where i would have picked that up from like it just was a part of me uh, something that so like that's that's a crazy argument for like it's just something from the genes i guess because i couldn't have learned it from him it's a, it's a crazy argument too for the idea that like energy, collective energy and collective like person, like if you exist for even a small fraction of a second, okay, maybe you need a little bit more time than that. But uh, on the grand scheme of things, a small fraction of a second, your influence has made it to at least your family. And then if you've been alive at least 20 years, at least beyond your families, that when you do die, there is enough influence that you have made to assume that your existence mattered. That crazy, right? It's a crazy philosophical thought. I'm getting in a philosophical train, but to think that no matter what, because of mannerisms, because of your personality, you're going to influence 
let's just say 10 people a year, right? We can talk about your family, friends, 10 people a year. You influence 10 people a year. New people, let's go new people, right? Or, or new mannerisms, new actions. If you have 20 years, I'd, again, math, that's 200, right? 20 years, 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 200, right. yeah, yeah. 200 people, that should be easy, Colin. Uh, 200 <laughs> people, to, um, tw- after 20 years, if you're 20 years old, that's 200 people. If you're 30 years old, that's 300 people. You live 70 years, that's 700 people that go to the 10 other people. And you do that long enough. This is the thing I was saying. You do that long enough. You take that many mannerisms, your personality, you give it to someone else long enough. Everybody's connected. And I think we were talking about that last time is that we're living in this interconnected world where everything you do matters in such a way that it, but it also doesn't matter because everything's connected. You know what I mean? I mean, that was, that was big, big full circle philosophical picture right there. Everything matters, but nothing matters. That's, that's how I live my life. <laughs> That's how I don't we that's how we all try to live our lives. But do you understand? Like, isn't that it's really crazy to think that we live in this interconnected world where you never know who's really influencing you or who you're influencing. Oh yeah. I mean I so I I was I almost wore the sweatshirt tonight. I, I have it, uh, as you're like talking about this. So my grandfather had a saying that I really love that I think will eventually become another tattoo. For right now I just made it into a sweatshirt. But it's uh a life is only worth the number of lives that it touches. And like, I really love that, like that whole philosophy because yeah, you never know whether it's not like if, if it's you giving a dollar to the, per, the homeless person on the street and like that dollar goes to make a difference or somebody watches you do that and then they go and buy somebody Starbucks or also the other way around though. Like, you know, you, you push a kid down on the ground and like somebody else sees that and thinks that bullying is cool or something like that. Like, your impact, uh, your life, I think, is measured by the impact that you have on others. And like, personally, I live by the philosophy of I want that to be a positive impact over time. But yeah, I think that that's very true. Like, whether it's big or small, you, you do have an impact on those around you. And if you're morally conscious, you, you try your best to, to use that in a good way. It becomes a thing where I think that's kind of a problem with famous people is that I think they have to live with that understanding that they influence or impact so many more people than just the normal average person. Cause you could, if you keep going down the line, your influence goes to everybody, like we said, but if you're a famous person, you don't have to go that far on the line to see where your influence leads, especially someone like Joe Rogan, who has one of the biggest podcasts in the world. He speaks to basically everybody, or you can go any musician who's like huge Drake, I guess you could say his, you know, whatever, what he says in a song, it's immediately going to affect probably a whole generation. And so, you know, it, it becomes the life is only like your, your grandfather's saying the lives it touches. And if you, because you can make an argument that if you're touching people in a bad way, it sounds bad. <laughs> don't, touch, don't touch people in a bad way. Yeah, you should cut that one out. <laughs> don't touch people in a bad way. I'm not advocating for that. <laughs> touching people in a bad if you're if you're if your influence is impacting people in a in a negative manner. There we go. Um, there we go. Then, if you really sit down and like understand who that that that's influencing the whole uh, world. I think you'll have a better, a bigger picture of what humanity should be really about. You know, I a hundred percent agree. That's, that's the life, the motto, the way. 
let's take it all back full circle and talk about viruses again. You could say the same thing about viruses, right? Like, or an argument for why you should get vaccinated is that if you now influence can be shown through like the way ideas, like the information. Um, I think we're in the information age right now. I tweet something, the whole world can see it if it blows up. But to take that to viruses, if I go out and I sneeze on four people and I have COVID, the same thing could be said about spreading COVID, you know? Yeah, no, I, early on in the pandemic, I, I, I equated, somebody said that COVID was like the new STD and I was like, that's pretty funny. Like, yeah, nobody wants it and everybody looks at you like funny if you have it. Um, but I equated it to drinking and driving, right? Like if you don't want to protect yourself, that's, that's cool. That's your prerogative. Just like if you want to go get hammered and like just black out, that's also cool. Like that's your prerogative. If you die of alcohol poisoning, like that sucks. It's going to affect the people who love and care about you, but you made that decision. But the second you decide to get into a car when you're blacked out and you hit somebody, I unfortunately have had two very, two people in my life who were killed by a drunk driver. So I directly know like what the impact is of that. Like they didn't make that decision. So you made this decision. And now not only is your impact that you just killed somebody, but now it ripples and it affects all the people who knew that person and everything. And so COVID any, anytime you're sick, but yeah, COVID I thought was the same way, right? Like if you don't want to protect yourself, you don't want to go get vaccinated. You don't want to wear a mask whatever like if you you get it and you're asymptomatic that's great you get hospitalized that sucks but like you were willing to accept those consequences but if you go and spread it to somebody and it kills somebody's grandma or it hospitalized somebody and now they've got hospital bills to pay for like you're impacting other people's lives in a negative way and that's that's really uncool well first and foremost i'm sorry i'm really sorry that that happened to you uh, your friends passing away um but second off i don't think a lot of people understand the expenses of hospitals either like if you really want to just start with that like people like i'm law clerking for a law firm this summer um because i want to go to law school do all that thing but he works in medical malpractice and to see those hospital bills blows my mind and that's unfortunately why when negligent actions happen why people have to sue against those doctors because not only do they maybe the insurance doesn't cover the entire cost but they they racked up so much fees, especially if they got hurt while in the hospital. And people don't understand how expensive medical care, especially in the United States is, especially for good care. Yeah, yeah, it is really expensive. And it doesn't help that while I have all respect for, for doctors and physicians and, and medicine, modern medicine, the hospital system itself is a supermarket for people. Patients have price tags and that's why doctors complain about not having enough time for a patient interaction and stuff like that. And so the hospital is at the end of the day, an entity to make money. And so, you know, you go, you have to get a hospital uh, ambulance ride and that's a couple thousand dollars right there just for the, just for the ride to the hospital. You didn't even get treated yet. They give you an ibuprofen on the ambulance and that's 500 bucks. I don't know why that I made that number up. I, but I assume that, and ibuprofen is probably more expensive in the hospital than it is if you get it in the pills that you have it, but all these things build up. And so anytime you don't have to go to the hospital because you're dying over something, again, let me clarify, I'm not advocating not going to the hospital if you're sick, but if you, if you have to go to the hospital, not only are you going there because you're sick, because your life might be in danger or something like that, but you're also adding a hospital bill like you were just talking on top of that. And so, 
not all, not everybody's fortunate enough to have good insurance. Not everybody's fortunate enough to have finances where, you know, just getting a thousand dollar, a couple thousand dollar hospital bill is like no big deal. That can be crippling to somebody if they have to choose between paying a bill, going into default or feeding their family. Yeah. It's like that, uh, Family Guy episode where Joe's he's when he's still walking he runs in on he's chasing a like a shoplifter and he's just trying to feed his family with I can't remember if it was an apple or soup and he just lets him go because it's like it's like that's like when your humanity starts to tap in when when people start to steal to feed their family it's like what are we doing yeah it's like what are we doing and unfortunately that's a lot of the way the American civilization is found founded on is, is entities make money. Like you're saying hospitals alone make money because they're hospitals. Um, and then you can go airports, wire bag of chips at the airports, 15 bucks, dude. I'm just trying to fly. Um, <laughs> exactly. And it's cause the entities like making money and, and they gotta, they gotta I mean, play. You know what were you gonna say? Oh no, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Finish up. I think I was finished. I, mean, I was just going to say entities, they, they, especially in American society, we have to make money or, or we want to, you know? Yeah. I mean, I am not here to condemn capitalism. I'm all for it. I love being able to make more money based off of selling a product or having something that's useful. I mean, I don't make any money right now. So hopefully I've been, I'd like to have a product that's useful, but I like the idea of being able to do that. But the downside of capitalism is that you just have to assume that capitalism without morality is evil. I mean, essentially, right? Is you're just going to make money. You're going to put profit over people and you're going to make money on the backs of others and put them down. So I think there needs to be a balance in any, any corporation, any spot in capitalism where you have to weigh morality with the benefit, right? How can we make money? How can you be rewarded for doing a service? But how can you then take that and step, stick a hand back and pull those behind you who have less up and like do your part for humanity? Be a good person and make money. Yeah, I, I think it's um, fascinating what you're saying because it's almost like the pro- one of the problems with especially our capitalist system is that it's a bunch of different morality compasses acting together, you know, and some people believe one thing and some people believe in the other. And so when they're all fighting everything and only thing that really regulates them is some governmental plans, but really the free market, you can basically, companies can run the world. Large corporations get to run society, basically. They get to deem what the price is to be paid for something. And so, like I said, you know, we, I like to think that most people are good people, but I don't know if that's the case for all corporations because it's a combination of people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. And it's easy to see, I don't know, I don't know if it's money or what, but like, this makes me think of like Facebook and things like that, right? Where like, it starts out as something innocent and like all of a sudden, like what it's become, I I don't know. Is it because Facebook is an evil entity and they're just like, they don't care? Or is it that they're about the bottom dollar, so they don't care what's being put out there? Or is it just the fact that like, you know, they're not evil and things just get ahead of them and they don't know how to keep up with it. And so... Yeah, I who am I to pass judgment on on everybody out there trying to make a buck? But it would be nice if more people put people over profit than the other way around. For sure. Well, I think that was a good conversation, Kenan. Is there anything you want to talk about before we wrap this up? Uh, I don't know. We hit a lot of different topics here. Everybody's got herpes. Uh, 
I forgot to tell you the numbers here in America between the ages of 14 and 49. Um, two out of every three people have herpes, so 66%. So if you're in a room with three people, two of them have HSV-1. Uh, one in eight people have herpes simplex type two. So if you're in a room with 10 or eight people, one of them has HSV-2. 98% uh, of people have chickenpox virus, which later becomes shingles. That's why you have to get the booster. Um, so pretty much everybody has that. And then if you've ever had mono, um, that's also a herpes virus, Epstein-Barr virus. So everybody's got the herp. Everybody's got the herp. That's a, well, man, this was this is always fun talking to you. You're very engaging. We always have a good conversation. And I think we cleared up the vaccine argument for everybody. So. I hope so. We definitely we definitely went off track on that. But yes, uh, I'm not going to tell somebody to get the vaccine, but like get the vaccine. Like, Kenan Hutchinson, everybody. If you guys want to check him out, it's Kenan Hutchinson on Instagram and Science with Kenan on YouTube. He's a really dope dude. He just invests in the public. He gives a lot of information to normal people like you and I. And he's a really awesome dude. Go check him out on everything. And ladies and gentlemen, as always, stay demanding.